Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, um, just slip up your hand, and one of our church members will be glad to, to bring you a copy of God's Word. Uh, we're in Mark, chapter 5, this morning. And we'll begin reading in verse 20, actually we're going to be a little bit earlier than I planned. We're going to begin reading in verse 21 in just a moment. We live in a screwed up world. Anybody agree with that? Uh, Anybody feel the weight of the brokenness this week in the world? In this church, in this community, next week there's a funeral uh, for a 44-year-old mother of uh, four kids, uh, which we know very well, that live across the street. Um, Austin will be preaching the funeral for uh, Valerie's grandmother uh, tomorrow. News of Afghanistan hit last week, Haiti, last Sunday morning. Um, COVID just feels like it just keeps coming. You thought it was going to be over like a year ago. And, uh, and it just feels like wave after wave after wave, you know, I mean, globally and and then, and, and, and globally, but, but especially like personally, I mean, each one of you, that's not the only things going on in your lives (laughs) or that's on your horizon. And we were, uh, we, we took a short two day, three day beach trip this week and, uh, there was one day where the waves were were pretty rough because of the storm. And have you ever been in a situation where, you know, you're jumping over one wave only to be smacked in the fa- face by the next one, right? Because uh, it just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. And, uh, man, I feel that in our world. Um, I preached this sermon, and I did that exact same introduction in the first service. And then I finished the sermon. And I stepped down into uh, the congregation to sing the song right after the sermon. And Bethany tells me that uh, Amelia has been taken to the emergency room. And Emery's there right now in the emergency room uh, with Amelia because Amelia swallowed something. Um, and so they're there now, you know. And it's like um, wave after wave after wave, right, you know. And so the Lord is good like that. He, he makes you preach a sermon and he makes you believe that sermon, Uh almost immediately. When you're faced with the brokenness of the world, and uh, especially when it gets to the point of overwhelmingness, you know, where you just sort of sense your own desperation, you get the sense in your soul that's just like, okay, God, um, I know you're there. I know you. there's a God, right? I mean, you just look out in the world, and you can know that God exists. I mean, you can't gaze up out at that same sea with those same uh, waves and think that 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 just happened. Someone made that. Uh, There's a divine designer. But there comes this sort of restlessness in the human soul that says, says, God, if you're there, uh, come on down here for a while, and let's talk face to face. I I know you're incomprehensible. I mean, I know that, that you're beyond my finite ability to grasp or understand. Could you just come and, and, and speak eye to eye, man to man, and, and, and let me hear from you, let me understand you, let me understand your plan, um, give, give me something personable here to where I could have the fullness of you, but maybe the fullness of you in some flesh that I can talk to. And we have that desire uh, for that sort of personableness in God, but we forget that in the Gospel of Mark, when we look into the face of Jesus, into his words and into his actions, that's exactly what we see. We see the fullness of an incomprehensible God putting on human flesh and stepping into the brokenness of the world for humanity to look at him face to face and to know who he is, what he's like, and what he's got planned for the world. The Gospel of Mark has made clear from the beginning that the topic of this book, 
is the personhood of Jesus. It is who he is and what he came to do. The Gospel of Mark has made clear that Jesus uh, wields the very authority of God over everything. He forgives sins. He calms storms. He cast out diseases and demons and everything about Jesus has got you so far. And by Mark chapter 5, this, this, there's something about him that makes him, yes, he's human. I see he's truly human, but he's more than that. He is God in human flesh coming with a message for a broken world that he has entered into. So when we read Mark chapter 5, and I'm just going to, I'm going to begin where, where Ray um, began last week so that we can see the fullness of how he partners these two stories together. When we read this and we read about how Jesus interacts with people, when we read about what he says and what he does, we are seeing the very heart of God put on display in a historical moment and preserved in a book that we might gaze at the heart of God even today in the 21st century. And so, with those things in mind, let's look at this isolated sort of instance with Jesus where he meets several people who are in desperate need of him. Verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, uh, we're going to we're going to read and pray for understanding. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch him, even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And they looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. He strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. All right, let's pray together that God would give us understanding of these two stories. Lord, we thank you um, 
for your undeniable sovereignty uh, of how you weave details together and how you put the truth of the word of God before our eyes when we need it. And we pray uh, right now that you would give clarity, that you would uh, help us to see who you are in the face of Jesus and help us to obey uh, the, the only command in this text, which is to believe, Lord. We, we love you, and I pray that you would give me clarity of mind uh, to preach your word in such a way that would help us to believe. Uh, we pray this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, look at verse 25 again with me. Um, last week, we, we saw the beginning of this passage, and just as a reminder, um, how Mark does things in his writing, he office, often sandwiches two stories together. So he begins a story, and then he puts a story in the middle, and he comes back and ends the story. And he often does that to communicate that both these stories are tied together in the sense that you're supposed to get the same thing from both stories. Uh, the centerpiece sort of interprets the outside pieces. And so... Uh, Last week, Ray begins the first outside piece of this moment with Jairus, uh, where Jairus is falling down in desperation, asking Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And now, verse 25, as he's walking with Jairus through the crowded streets, Mark changes gears and he directs your eyes to one woman amidst the crowd. Now look at verse 25. Here's the woman, and listen to how he describes her. He's describing her in detail on purpose. He's aiming to make you feel something. Verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, think about the details. Mark includes details about this woman's life because he aims for you to sense the level of desperation that this woman was at. Look at the description. As he describes, think about this woman's condition of desperation. Truth number one, I'll give it to you on the front end. Truth number one, desperation drives us to Jesus. Desperation drives us to Jesus. So let's consider the woman. Her suffering in this moment is physical. She's, she's suffering with a chronic condition of bleeding, a condition that was physically uncomfortable, to say the least, a condition that I'm not going to venture off to say that I know a whole lot about, but a condition that took a physical toll on her entire body in an ongoing manner. But this physical form of suffering that she's experiencing is not coming upon her once a month. Rather, it is nonstop, all the time, for 12 years. Her suffering is not only physical, her suffering is perpetual. Anyone can handle anything for a short period of time. Anyone can pass through a storm as long as there's clear hope at the end of the tunnel. There's clear sort of uh, end in sight. Anyone can have a hard day. Anyone can have a hard week. Anyone can even have a hard year. But this woman has endured this same suffering for 12 years. And it's not just physical suffering. And physical suffering never is just physical suffering. It's also social and emotional suffering. See, there's some background going on to this text that we don't know as a first century Gentile reader. According to the Torah, a woman was unclean for seven days during her menstrual cycle as a matter of cleanliness and purity. You've got to remember that this is a time where medical supplies are not what they are today. So the Old Testament includes these instructions for how to ensure cleanliness and to prevent the spread of disease or sickness. And Leviticus uh, uh, describes how they're living in these tight-knit communities around the temple. Leviticus gives these instructions in more detail than most of us are comfortable with. 
but I'm going to read it because it's in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the day of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she's cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. Now, Perhaps just reading that passage in Leviticus makes you uncomfortable. And there was nothing in me that really wanted to say the word discharge in the pulpit ever. And so take that uncomfortability that you feel just by the topic. And then imagine being this woman. Who's not only enduring physical pain for 12 years. But socially and emotionally she's been driven to isolation and shame for 12 years. She she could not touch another person lest she make them unclean and they have to undergo a purification process. She could not sit on a surface in a public space lest she make that surface unclean. Her suffering is physical it's perpetual, it's ongoing, it's social, it's emotional, and just to top it all off, it's financial. The text says that apparently she's expended every resource that she had in order to try to reverse her condition. Mark says she's seen many doctors. In fact, Mark says she'd suffered much under many Physicians, So who knows what sort of experimental treatments or medications that this woman has turned to in her desperation to, to overcome this condition of helplessness. She's pursued every doctor, every treatment until she's lost all of her money. And Mark just drives it home with this phrase at the end of the description. She was no better, but rather grew worse. So not only do all of her efforts fail, it's, she seems to be regressing. She's going backwards from where she wants to be. If there's ever a description of a hopeless and desperate person in the New Testament, this is it. This woman is in a place of total shame total desperation, she's exhausted every avenue, and she hears that Jesus has come to town, and she devises a plan to pass through the crowd, fight her way to Jesus, and as a last-ditch effort, just maybe, if I reach out and touch him without even knowing without him knowing that I've touched him. Maybe there's some sort of power in him that I will be healed. Now, keep in mind, she's supposed to stay away from people. (laughs) She's not supposed to come into contact with anyone. It's against the law for her to touch someone. She, She shouldn't even be pressing through the crowd, much less reaching out to touch the famous rabbi. Yet here she is squeezing through the crowd to lay a hand upon the garment of Jesus. She breaks the Jewish law (laughs) to get to the Jewish Messiah. Desperate times calls for desperate measures. And there's a couple ways you can look at this desperation in this moment. It's a difficult position the woman is in, but, but we have to pause for a second and And praise God for the desperation. Because desperation drives us to Jesus. You got to pause and ask the question. If the doctors were able to cure her with the medicine, would this woman have sought out Jesus with this eagerness? 
if the suffering she was enduring had not gone on so long? Would this woman have sought Jesus in this way? See, I was convicted this week as I considered this reality. It's not the falling into the place of desperation that we should fear. It's the being stuck in the place of independence that we should fear. It's the being stuck in the place where we do not believe we need anything that we should fear. That is the disposition that drives us away from Jesus, not to Jesus. But because this woman senses a real need for God, she seeks out Jesus with everything that she's got and clings to him as her last resort. Jairus cast off all the pride that would have kept him from Jesus. His, his fellow uh, teachers of the law in the synagogue, his fellow leaders uh, would have patronized him for going to the Jesus that they had ridiculed and rejected. But Jairus just throws it all out, doesn't care, and falls to the feet of Jesus because his circumstances led him to a place where there's no other option. This guy's either got to be who he says he is, or I'm in trouble. The contrast between Jairus and this woman and the religious leaders described in Mark is so stark. I mean, it's, it's clear. The religious leaders, in their independence, their self-reliance, are robbing themselves of a Savior, whereas this outcast, outcast woman coming to the end of herself is reaching out for Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my life and I look at how often uh, I go about my day and my week uh, prayerless, I see in myself a disposition of independence rather than a disposition of desperation. And I can, I can see it through my prayer life. I think that, for me, is the clearest thing. I mean, desperation for God to move in a situation drives me to my knees. Independence and self-reliance just drives me to work a little harder. <laughs> Those are two very different things. I've often been convicted by the words of Robert Murray McShane when he says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Desperation drives us to Jesus. And we Christians, we Christians, of all people in the world, facing the brokenness of the world, we Christians, of all people, should be a people who embrace our own neediness and weakness and failures and struggle through the brokenness of the world. We Christians, of all people, should be the most vulnerable of people, the most open of people, the most free of people to admit we don't always have it together. In fact, it's this sort of desperation that is essential to our very salvation, our eternal salvation. Our salvation requires that we recognize and confess that our sin condition has no cure that we can get ourselves. We need someone outside of ourselves to fix ourselves. We are desperate for a Savior who can do in us what only He can do for us. We need Jesus to, to pay the price... I can't pay. And to open up the way, I could never walk. Desperation drives us to Jesus, and it drove this woman to Jesus. And the question on this woman's mind now is how will Jesus respond to this? Remember, she, I mean, she's broken the law <laughs> by fighting through the crowd. <laughs> to touch Jesus, and then what she does, she tries to disappear into the crowd. Like, she senses, I, I, I think it worked, I think I, I've been healed, and she disappears amongst in the crowd, uh, almost fearful that he would find out what she's done. And, and she's going to just go on about her way now. Look, look at what happens next. Look at verse 29. Immediately, the flow of blood dries up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, you got to love this. Jesus is not thrown back here, right? I mean, this is like, this is like God walking into the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and he says, where are you, Adam? <laughs> Does Jesus not know where Adam is? <laughs> Does God not know where Adam is? Does Jesus not know who's going? Jesus wasn't just strolling along, and this woman, like, grabbed a hold of his, his garment, and, like, power just zapped out of him. He's like, oh, what, what happened here? She just stole a little piece of power, and I wasn't really about it. <laughs> Jesus knows exactly what's going on, but just like 
him being Jesus, in a, in a very uh, human way, looks out and says, and says, in her hearing, where she can hear it, says, who touched my garments? And then his disciples, being the disciples, say, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. I, I, it's funny for me to watch the disciples respond to Jesus throughout the gospel because they are so often bewildered, confused, out of step, just kind of flabbergasted by whatever Jesus is doing. <laughs> I mean, Jesus says, who touched me? And disciples are like, look at him, look at him, <laughs> and they're like, uh, literally everyone, Jesus, uh, let's keep <laughs> like moving along like it's like they have to like there's so many times where they feel like they've got to coddle Jesus because he's being so weird <laughs> and Jesus just sort of ignores their confusion uh, and 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 asks out loud and looking around seeing who has done this and there's the woman right I mean she's in the crowd hearing Jesus say who touched me. Now, she has a choice. She can, she can go her way enjoying the miracle, uh, or she can make herself known to this Messiah and confess that she broke the law to get to him to touch him. And look at the description of her in verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, there's legitimate fear in this woman because she's done something that she wasn't supposed to do, and she's received something that she thinks she wasn't supposed to receive. And so she comes trembling like, I'm about to get it now. I've, I've gone out of step. I've broke the law religiously, socially. I've lived as an outcast for 12 years, and I just broke the law in this interaction with who might possibly be the Messiah because he actually just healed me. So she's freaked out at what Jesus might do or say to her now that she lays bare before him and has just spoke all, spilled all the guts. It says she, she told him the whole truth. Now remember, in this day, when you had a disease like this for 12 years, um, culturally it was sort of assumed that you deserved it. They, they didn't have a proper way of perceiving brokenness in the world, and so if you were struggling with this, it must be because you were a sinner of some sort. So it's likely that this woman believes that, right? It's not just physical suffering. She believes that she's an outcast and deserves to be an outcast. So there's a whole lot of fear happening. What is Jesus going to say? Verse 33 again, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, I think the thing that amazed me most about this passage and the story as I was looking at it this week was Jesus did not have to stop and turn around and ask who touched me. If the miracle was the primary point, Jesus just could have kept moving along and left this woman to enjoy being free from this disease. But what good is physical healing in a life that will ultimately end in death anyway? Jesus stops, and he seeks out a face-to-face -face interaction with this woman. You know, and I've noticed this about Jesus in the past. Jesus when he heals, as he's walking through, I mean, he could just show up to Capernaum and just, and just sort of like create like a force field or something and say, if you want healing, just pass on by. I mean, he could have he made like a fast food sort of restaurant sort of thing, like have a nice day and just kept rolling and just, just healed the whole deal. I mean, he could have just declared, hey, y'all healed and kept on moving to the next city, but he doesn't do that. It, it, it's almost always combined with this personal interaction where Jesus interprets for the person the meaning or the reason for the healing. Truth number two, Jesus draws near to the desperate. It is true that desperation drives us to Jesus, but, but Jesus draws near 
to the desperate. He's not content to just provide physical healing to this woman to go on to live a normal life. He desires for her a new spiritual reality which flows from her being near to him. Listen to how one commentary puts it. The persistence of Jesus in discovering who touched him rivals the woman's persistence in reaching Jesus. She wants a cure, however, a something. Whereas Jesus desires a personal encounter with a someone. He is not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. In the kingdom of God, miracle leads to meeting. So to this trembling woman, all in her fear, Jesus looks at her with compassion, and the first words out of his mouth is daughter. The first words out of his mouth is meant to provide assurance. She's not in danger. In fact, she's the safest she's ever been. She is affirmed and welcomed into this relationship like a daughter is welcomed into the arms of the father, though she probably had not experienced that in minimum 12 years. This moment of Jesus rising this this trembling woman up, probably still with bloody clothes and calling her daughter is a beautiful moment in history, in real physical time-space history, which is a testimony to the spiritual reality that we have in the gospel when we draw near to Jesus in our desperation. He does not keep moving on to his next responsibility. He turns and he draws near to me. The woman does exactly what I need to do to be saved and what I need to do every stinking day. I need to draw to him in desperation saying, you have what, what only you have and what I do not have. I need you, Jesus. And as I recognize my need for Jesus, Jesus turns to me in all of my uncleanliness and Jesus calls me son. And then he draws me near to him and he interprets for me what's happening and what will happen. And he sends me on to live in peace. Remember, this Jesus walking in the flesh is God in the flesh. You're viewing the heart of God. <laughs> We get to see the disposition of God toward desperate people. Remember Mark chapter 2. This has been a theme from the beginning. Mark chapter 2. They're ridiculing Jesus for eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. In Mark chapter 2, 17, Jesus looks at these brothers and says, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus heals this woman draws near to this woman, and then interprets for her what is happening. And this is what he says. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Truth number three, Jesus desires faith. In this moment, Jesus is clarifying for her what's happened. The power is not in the superstitious touching of the garment. I mean, the disciples already testified, Jesus, everybody's touching the garment. Like, everyone's touching you. What, you. what are you talking about? As Jesus is pressing through the crowd, everyone's clamoring for him. Jesus wants to make clear to this woman, there's not magic in my clothes. Salvation isn't the formula of you reaching out and touching something. It's in the faith that trusts in Jesus. There's a lesson to be learned here that Jesus wants the woman to walk away with and everyone around him to walk away with and us in this room 2,000 years later to walk away with. The most important thing for this woman is that she walk in a trust in Jesus. Walk in peace. Continue in the joy of your healing. But remember, it was faith in me that made you well. Now, Jesus says this for her sake, but remember, there's another part to the story. Jairus is still standing there, right? In fact, if I'm Jairus, I'm a little frustrated because we're on our way for you to heal my dying daughter. <laughs> and we're pressing through the crowd, and Jesus stops and says, who touched me? J Jairus is like, I don't care who touched you. <laughs> let's, let's move right along, Jesus. <laughs> 
But, but Jesus stops and has this conversation with this outcast woman. And here's this. Did I just break the mic? I broke it, didn't I? Okay, I'm good. He has this conversation with this woman, and Jairus is standing by, and Jesus looks at her, and Jairus would have heard Jesus look at her, and what does he call her? Daughter. And who is Jairus frantic about right now? His daughter. Jairus sees Jesus have the same sort of compassionate relationship with this hurting woman as Jairus has for his hurting daughter. And Jesus tells her, it's faith. That's the important thing here. <laughs> and so here's Jairus standing there. He's seeing all this come together. He's certainly still sort of frantic. We need to move along. And then verse 35 happens. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, so he looks at Jairus, and he says, do not fear, only believe. In other words, do what you just saw this woman do. I don't care if she's a woman. I don't care if she's an outcast. I don't care if she's been an outcast for 12 years. I don't care that you're the synagogue ruler. I don't care that your, your social status is here and hers is there. Do what she did. Believe right now and trust me. And that's a tall order because apparently death has already occurred. In fact, Jairus' friends come to Jesus and say, or come to Jairus, you don't need to bother Jesus anymore. Like, don't even, he doesn't even have to come. We have arrangements to make. Like, we have grieving to do. Just he doesn't even need to come. It's over. As the story progresses, I want you to notice that that spirit of the world around Jairus and Jesus sort of continues. Um, the, they begin to ridicule Jesus as he steps into the house. The, the, the wisdom of the world is, is everywhere in this text. They're actually laughing at Jesus as he makes his way to the girl. And what Jesus wants Jairus to do, he wants him to walk right through the laughter and the hopelessness of the world around him. And he wants Jairus to just trust him even when it seems crazy to do so. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, I mean, just when he entered into that, I mean, the scene that Jesus is walking into should just stun you when you know who Jesus is. As he walks into the room with that degree of despair, And Jesus asked them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and the mother and those who were with him and, and went in where the child was. So the laughter is because, because uh, the laughter is there because of how inescapable the reality of death is in the world. I mean, I mean, if death has come, it's over, Jesus. I mean, if there was ever a permanent condition of which no one could escape, it is death. Death takes no prisoners, makes no negotiations, doesn't change its mind, has no cure. Jesus, you've done some cool tricks. But this is not a disease. This is not a deformity. This is death. It's over. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Umai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Truth number four, and our final truth of this morning is this. Jesus overcomes even death. 
with the word of his mouth. I mean, he commands, <laughs> arise. And she arose. And Mark says, everyone was overcome with amazement. And I'm betting that's an understatement <laughs> for the sentiment of the room and the father and the mother. I mean, healing the woman of bleeding of 12 years is amazing. Causing paralytics to walk is crazy. Causing the blind to see, that's awesome. Casting out demons, pretty impressive. Calming the storm, you're definitely God. We get it. But exercising authority over death and life itself is a new level for Jesus. And once again, the point of the passage is a testimony to who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. I mean, the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus moves about in the broken world, what you're seeing is, in every confrontation, the cause of the fall is being reversed in his presence. Right? I mean, the sin of mankind brought death into the world. And as Jesus approaches situations where death is reigning over in control, all of a sudden it's reversed. Jesus is in control and death is subordinate. The thing which controls all of us, we can't control when we die, how we die, and we definitely can't turn it back. Jesus commands it to do as he pleases. So as, as Jesus moves around in the broken world in Mark... The fall is sort of being reversed, and what you're seeing is the fact that Jesus really is God, and you're seeing the curtain pulled back on what Jesus intends to do with this broken world. To make it a place where there is no more bleeding. And make it a place where there are no more funerals. There is no more COVID. This resurrection of this little girl is a prequel to the main event. Everything in the Gospel of Mark is moving us steadily first toward the cross of crucifixion. The whole story is moving us to a showdown between Jesus and death itself. Where Jesus would, would submit himself under the terror of death. Where Jesus came to the world. Christmas happened so that Jesus would experience bleeding. Shame, total rejection, the loss of loved ones, where Jesus would experience death himself. He would submit himself under the terror of it and experience the fullness of the wrath of God on every sin. And he would do so in our place. Jesus rose this little girl from the dead. Showing his power over death. But it's just, it's just the pre-show to when on the third day, Jesus would begin to breathe again. And he would rise from the grave. And, and the message, the, the, the beauty of the resurrection is not just that it proves who Jesus says he is. The beauty of the resurrection is, yes, Jesus really is the son of God. But the beauty of the resurrection is, you're invited into this resurrection life. Jesus' resurrection is a prequel to the resurrection of the world. <laughs> Jesus' resurrection, his overcoming of death and death sting, is now a prequel to what he is going to do in all of us who trust in Jesus. Just as Jesus says, daughter or son, go in peace, your faith has been made well. Just as Jesus looks at this little girl and says, arise, he will do that for every individual person who puts faith in him as the Savior and Lord. That's good news for me. That's good news for you that Jesus says this in John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. See, it would be a mistake to read Jesus' miracles in Mark chapter 5, in the whole Gospel of Mark, and to try to discover some sort of formula that we need to get Jesus to work some sort of miracles in our own life. Okay, well, they did this. They fell on their knees this way. She touched his garment, so maybe we should pray over some garments and send those out to people. I mean, it would be a mistake to read the Gospels as some sort of manual or to do how you can get Jesus to do the things in your life that you want him to do. These passages are not here. So you can concoct, concoct a formula for faith healings today. They are here to increase your faith in a Jesus who has the power 
to reverse the effects of the fall in the world. They are here to increase your faith in a Jesus' kingdom to come where there will be no more bleeding and no more death. Peter was there in this moment. Peter was present and watched this happen. But Peter would go on to die a martyr's death in a broken world. Peter would go on to experience much of the sufferings that we see and experience today. But being present in that room and knowing Jesus has resurrection power, real faith, real genuine faith, trust in Jesus is not just just some sort of made-up confidence that you put on so you can get God to do what you want him to do. It's a trust that Jesus will, will prove true on his word. He'll fulfill the promise. That's the faith that keeps you walking and keeps you trucking through the brokenness of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This is, this is Peter's takeaway from, from like this moment. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me leave you with three takeaways, because I'm way over time. Takeaway number one. From these from the examples that we see here, and how Jesus is responding to these individuals. Truth, uh, takeaway number one is this. Embrace a posture of desperation. We need Jesus. We need him to save us. We need him to sanctify us. We need him to sustain us. We need him to send us. We need him to forgive us, shape us, embolden us, comfort us, empower us, heal us. Allow me this morning to simply challenge you to not to not wait to be desperate for Jesus when the outside circumstances around you force you to your knees. We've been, been invited to go to our knees with or without the circumstances forcing us to our knees. And I, for one, would rather go to my knees when things are good so I'm ready for when things are bad. Embrace a disposition of desperation and reject independence, Pride, self-reliance as the enemy that will bring you tumbling down when things really do get hard. Number two, exercise faith as a way of life. Jesus commands faith. It, 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 this means that, 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 that this is something we actively pursue as Christians. We should pray for faith. We should exercise it by meditating on things that are true. And then when everything around us makes, wants us to, to discard the things that are true, we grab onto things that are true with everything that we have. And we say, no, 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 no. These things are true. Regardless of the circumstances. That's why in Peter, the very next verses, he begins to talk about faith being tested by fire being precious, being revealed as genuine, because genuine faith is the clinging to true things when everything around you makes you angry or sad and makes you want to throw them away. So exercise faith as a way of life. Meditate on what is true. Rehearse what is true in your minds when fear wants to take over. It's not an automatic response because you're a Christian. It's a shield that you must take up into the battle. Takeaway number three, last one. Rest in the promise of future resurrection. The same Jesus who says, little girl arise, will say to all of us and all those who have died trusting Jesus, arise. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And so, so, listen, Christian, we handle brokenness differently than the rest of the world. Because we have a hope in a Jesus who reverses that. Verse 14, for since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, 
God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Truth number one, desperation drives us to Jesus. Um, Truth number two, Jesus draws near to the desperate. Truth number three, Jesus desires faith. And truth number four, Jesus overcomes even death. The gospel is good. And we live in a world that desperately needs it. And this is, wasn't a part of the takeaways that I had written down, but uh, just feel compelled to add another one. Um, think about how Jesus is responding to all these people in desperation and need. And he's showing compassion. And he's drawing near. And this woman who feels ashamed, he's drawing near. You, you, you realize that we are commanded to reflect Jesus to the world. And that one of the ways that we experience the trueness of the gospel uh, message in, in our midst, the hope of the resurrection, the peace of forgiveness, one of the ways that we experience it is experiencing Jesus in other people in our life. It's, it's in this community of the church where, where not only do we hear about the gospel, but we see the gospel manifested in the way that Drew forgives me and I forgive Drew. And the way in that Randy speaks true things into my life that I might have more faith. Like, like all of this about that we see in Jesus, we're like, well, I wish he would just come down and see us face to face. It was easy for back then. He promised that the Spirit of God would empower the church to go and be the body of Christ. So you want, you want, you want to be encouraged to believe these things and hope these things. Grab somebody. <laughs> And, 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 and experience the trueness of the gospel together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you for this word. Thank you for Jesus. Um, Lord, I, I believe that you are a healer. I believe that you miraculously intervened by the power of your spirit to bring healing in this world, even today, right now. God, I, I, I pray uh, that you would um, protect my little girl, Amelia, right now. I, I got a text message while I was preaching that she seems to be okay right now, but more tests to come, God. I believe you can preserve her and protect her by your sovereignty. But God, true faith is what I want to have that trusts you no matter what and draws near to you in desperation, believing you draw near to me in desperation. So God, we just pray for that kind of faith for our church family, one that just rests in the promise of resurrection, and the promise of the presence of our Savior. So, Lord, we pray, help us to direct our eyes to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.